We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You know, it's a common misconception that drinking eight glasses of water a day is enough for healthy hydration. But sweat consists of water and sodium, which means that you need water plus electrolytes to stay properly hydrated. Thankfully, there are products like Element that have all your electrolyte needs covered. You can try an Element Recharge Sample Pack by going to drinklmnt.com slash Alexi for only the cost of shipping. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This week, we'll be talking, well, U.S. Men's National Team, Champions League, Pulisic, Copa America, Mayor of Easttown, Nations League, Josie, the Divine Ponytail, Miami, MLS, uh, All or Nothing, the College Path, Water Skiing, and much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mossy, on this Monday, May 31st in the year 2021? I am doing well and excited for this opening segment because it is very rare that you and I get to discuss an episode of television right after it aired, given that we tend to watch shows at different times. But anyone that's listened to this podcast the last few weeks knows I've been carrying on about this HBO show, Mayor of Easttown. The seventh and final episode aired last night, and you were compelled to binge the first six last week so you could watch the finale live, which made me very happy. So we can talk about it today. That's what I did for you, my friend. So I got to the end of the six and you, you deserve some credit for steering me towards this and everybody that listens. And look, if, if you haven't watched this, uh, we get a two thumbs up recommendation. Um, you, you should, well, you don't have to, but uh, we, we certainly uh, recommend people watch this because I think it's really, really good. Uh, but you should skip ahead now if uh, you plan to watch it. If you have watched it, then this might be uh, this might be right up your alley. And a lot of people have. It's gotten a lot of buzz for the performances and the stories. And so, yeah, I uh, I binged the six, and then last night when I got home from work, I finished uh, uh, the seven uh, seventh and. Um, for those that, that are still listening and may, maybe want a little uh, a primer for it, it's uh, 
Um, it's about a a town. I think it's a fictitious town, right, Mossy? East town. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's Jeff still about a, a Pennsylvania town uh, outside of, let's say, Philadelphia or wherever. Um, and it, uh, it stars um, Kate Winslet. You may remember her from Titanic and many other things. Wonderful actress. And she does an incredible uh, Philly, Pennsylvania-esque type of uh, accent as a local detective. And stuff happens. All right, Mossy. Um, if if I'm giving this between a one and a ten, uh, I am giving this a solid seven. M- maybe more so for the acting, in particular, Kate Winslet. It uh, it has tones of uh, Silence of the Lambs uh, in in some of the stuff uh, that happens with the murders and the way that uh, Kate Winslet's character Mar, uh, who shoots uh, uh, Mare, excuse me, M A R E, goes about it. Uh, I was uh, I was compelled to continue watching. So that binge was very, very easy. I did not want to stop and find out what was going on. There's all sorts of tentacles, too, to the story. And some of them you think are leading places that don't. I did think that it petered out in the end, as many do that we have talked about on, on this pod. What would you give it if you had to give it between one and a 10? 10 being the best thing you've ever seen, one being the worst. Yeah, solid eight. I really okay. enjoyed it. Uh, the beauty of this show, and it's amazing they were able to pull this off in so few episodes, is that they so immersed you in this town, this community, and the lives of these people that w- when we got to the finale, it for me, it wasn't going to live and die on the whodunit aspect. That was just one element of the show. And, and that part of it I thought was okay, but you could poke holes at that. I, I read a lot of reviews this morning. Some people thought it was one twist too many. Uh, some people thought there were some weird unanswered questions like what was Dylan doing that night if he wasn't in bed with his girlfriend, stuff like that. And I have sympathy for all that. But even those articles still pivoted in and said, but it, but the finale still hit all the right emotional beats. And there were so many great scenes and different interactions between characters and, and particularly the last two, uh, the last scene between her and Lori and then her climbing up the the. the the stairs to the attic, you know, to, to confront her demons over Kevin's death. So I thought it was incredibly well done, as you said, well acted. So I give it very high marks. And, you know, we've seen this in other, uh, other productions where what I find interesting often is when a character is not perfect and, uh, you know, Mare is absolutely a flawed character, even at times during the, the, the seven episodes, there's times where she's downright not good at all. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, those are some of the most interesting characters, uh, characters out there. You know, to your, to your point, there are, there are multiple twists and turns. Uh, one, of the, one of the big things, though, and I know we had talked about it because when I first started, I, I think it was the first or second episode that I was in, immediately I started texting you because Guy Pierce, who is a you know, formidable actor, uh, has been in very, very big things, appears sporadically throughout this as her as one of her love interests and it's it's strange because i mean this is a this is a kind of a big actor and when he shows up you expect him to be much more a part of what is going on and i should say it remains to be seen whether there are going to be future uh, you know series uh you know or continuation of this but for now it's kind of book ended in this in this seven episode uh thing and nothing really happens with him, which was very, very strange for such a good actor to kind of be such a, a, a sideshow, if you will. And, and even the one role he was playing as Mayor's love interest, 
in the middle of the season, you felt like Zabel sort of took over that right. role. So then Guy Pierce really had nothing to do for a couple episodes there. And then he resurfaced at the end after Zabel was taken off the board, shall we say, which by the way, we should talk about that because it was a very interesting approach this show took. I mentioned it was seven episodes and you could argue the most dramatic scene took place at the end of episode five. And, and there was the resolution of one story there, which left some people wondering if the last two episodes were going to be anticlimactic. Did you feel that way about six and seven? Yeah, it wasn't perfect. And like I said, it kind of meandered. Oh, by the way, we, we should say that, uh, you know, our producer Jeff has, uh, has, wants us to be clear that Mare of Easttown is set in the Philly suburbs of Delco. You might have seen the SNL skit last week or so on the uh, accent over there or Delaware County over there. So that's uh, that's where it, that's where it is set. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not perfect, and it it could have used some some uh, some cleaning up. But all in all, I think we would both agree that this is definitely two thumbs up. Are you a true detective? Fan? No, I have not watched that. Because that would be another interesting comparison with seasons one and three of True Detective. Season two of True Detective, I pretend, didn't, didn't even happen because it's the worst season in the history of television. But <laughs> seasons one and three were good. Uh, and then the more recent one with HBO is The Undoing. A lot of people were comparing Mare to The Undoing. And certainly you'd say Mare, the clearly superior show, right? What The Undoing was the uh, one That was with... the Hugh Grant, Nicole Kidman. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities to it, though. Uh, there's a lot of that where it kind of veers off in different... Uh... But that was a show that I think did live and die on the done it aspects. So when yes. that was unsatisfying, you felt like the whole thing fell apart. The center didn't hold. In this case, like I said, even if you didn't love who they ended up making the killer, I still think there was plenty else to like about the show that there you would is. overall there come is. away with. It. And it, and there are a, a kind of homages, like I said, to Silence of the Lambs or to the Sopranos in terms of her, you know, using that that vehicle to find out more about her with the psychiatrist and and, and all that. So yeah, it, it was very good. Thank you for recommending that. Uh, if you okay, so now if you're just coming back and joining us after you fast forward <laughs> and have screamed and yelled at us for talk, taking so much time uh, talking about it, that's the good. The bad, Mossy. Okay, uh, and this doesn't mean you shouldn't watch it, but the bad is. I watched Baggio, The Divine Ponytail, which just completely showed up uh, one, one night when I was uh, in bed on the Netflix stream. I had, I had never, I, I had not been warned about it. I had no idea it even existed. First, I think that this is a documentary on Roberto Baggio, one of the great Italian uh, players, one of the great players in the world, famous for just being an incredible player and a very expensive player, but also he missed a penalty in the uh, 1994 World Cup final, which ultimately led to your Brazil uh, being champions there. And it's, I thought it was a documentary. I come to find out it's a docudrama and it's not very good at all. But being the soccer person that I was, of course, I watched the entire hour and 30 or whatever it is. And there's actors portraying him and talking about his career. And it just it, it zigzags all over the place. And there's no real clear line. And you don't necessarily feel like you know him more. And they go into the Buddhism part of it and stuff like that. So for the for the diehard soccer folks out there, you, you should check it out. It was kind of like they're. Um, Years ago, a uh, one of these th one of these docudramas came out about Def Leppard, and it wasn't quite the docu the documentary or the level of a uh, of a movie that you wanted. But it also wasn't just purely TV. It was right in that middle ground where you didn't. It wasn't great, but it wasn't completely horrible. 
this was certainly not great. And it bordered on horrible, uh, horrible at times. But, you know, the soccer folks in us, I mean, I'm, I, I, sh- I think you probably should check it out, even just for its painful parts. Are you going to check it out, Mossy? Uh, well, that was not a ringing endorsement, but yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I'll probably find a way to watch it this week. All right, listen, uh, enough of this talk. This is one of the longest ones we've done. But, you know, whenever I join you and we can, in a communal sense, come together and, and bond over the stuff that we have watched, we like to, to do that. If you have watched any of the stuff that we've talked about, um, then you will have enjoyed that. If you haven't, then you probably will have shut off or you're coming back to us right now. So welcome back. Welcome back to the State of the Union podcast. All right, Masi, ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, listen, all sorts of stuff happening in soccer, even though the end of the club season has happened, uh, so much more continues on. And by the way, it's only going to get uh, bigger and better as we get through this uh, this summer of soccer that is uh, that is upon us. Uh, we're going to start out with um, the United States uh, men's national team, which is back in camp and gearing up for the CONCACAF Nations League finals, which would be a semifinal and a final. This is the first time that we have uh, seen them in a while in its, you know, involving as as much to the team as you possibly can. And in particular, all of the European players that are available and a lot of them uh, were. So this was a fun opportunity to see the U.S. play a game again away against a, a very good Swiss team. And so this was a good challenge. I don't think, you know, ultimately the score was two to one, uh, the U.S. losing to Switzerland. It could have been much worse for the U.S. in that there were uh, opportunities in the second half, multiple opportunities, three and four opportunities, clear cut opportunities to put uh, to put goals in breakaways and that kind of stuff. So this was not a good showing. First half was okay. Second half was worse. What was interesting for, for me in this game is that you were looking at a Switzerland and in this day and age where everybody loves to play out of the back and that's what's enlightened and evolved soccer out there. Switzerland, I mean, it, their adherence to playing out of the back was, was, was something to behold. It was almost as if they were taking this, this opportunity, this game as a training exercise to work on playing out of the back. And look, it's still a friendly. And so the, uh, the ramifications uh, and the consequences of the risks that you are inherently taking by playing out of the back aren't as great as if you're doing it in the Euros uh, coming up. And what ended up happening was the U.S. actually high-pressed and did a very good job of high-pressing, but when they won that ball in dangerous uh, uh, areas uh, and in advanced positions, they didn't translate it into enough uh, opportunity. And so, therefore, as the game progressed, I think Switzerland got a whole lot more comfortable and confident in knowing what the U.S. was all about, and then they just started to pick them apart and, and coming, out of the, uh, coming out of the back. For those that maybe didn't watch you know, we had uh, Josh Sargent up top. I know that's always a talking point as to who's going to play up top. Josh Sargent uh, up top. We saw Gio Reyna. We saw McKinney. We saw Aronson uh, out there. We saw Serginho Dest, Brooks, McKenzie, Cannon. Uh, Horvath was in goal because, uh, as we know, Zach Steffen coming off of that Champions League game. And obviously, no uh, Christian Pulisic uh, out there for this team. Mossy, what did you think of this game? Well, in running through the lineup, you left out the two MLS players, Yule and Legette, including... Well, they play in MLS, so they don't really matter anyway. (laughs) Uh, No, listen, I am bullishly high on 
this U.S. team, I think all the optimism is warranted, but it is worth mentioning. Uh, the last five friendlies they played before this one were against Panama, El Salvador, Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, and Northern Ireland's B team. So there was an element of beating up on inferior competition and kind of, you know, building up everybody's uh self-esteem a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me a little bit of uh, a college basketball team that has an easy early non-conference schedule and, and racks up all these blowouts. But then eventually you get to that first uh, tough game and, it, and it's a bit of a wake-up call to step up in class. And now all of a sudden, uh, there is a risk to pressing that aggressively against a team. They can pass their way out of that press sometimes. There is a risk to Sergio Des bombing down the wing and leaving all the space behind him, particularly when the midfielders aren't quick enough to go over and cover for him. There is a, a risk in having slow-footed center backs like John Brooks there is a downside to having a center forward low in confidence like Josh Sargent, who doesn't put away his chances. So it was just a reminder that that this, there's still a lot of work to be done. Things aren't perfect. And when you face good teams, some of the weaknesses that perhaps weren't exposed by some of this lesser opposition uh, will get exposed. So, yeah, it's a good reminder for this team moving forward. Yeah, you mentioned Sergino Dest, who did not have a good day. Um, we, we know what he can do going forward, and he is arguably both the best right back and left back for this U.S. men's national team. And look, he, he's an undeniable talent, plays for Barcelona and all that. But a lot of our bullishness when it comes to Sergio Dest has been his ability to go forward and what, you know, the dynamic that he gives in doing that. And to your point, against lesser and inferior opposition, yeah, you're going to have the time and space and the ability to do so. But ultimately, when you are an outside back, notwithstanding, you know, uh, uh, Roberto Carlos and, uh, you know, uh, you know, these types of, of, of players that do bomb forward, your first uh, and most important job is to defend and your ability to, to, to defend. And, you know, he, uh, he, uh, he had the handball for the uh, for the penalty that ultimately uh, Switzerland missed. But I think defensively he was, he was targeted and did not, did not step up. And that's a problem because to your point, Mossy, this is about competing against elite teams and being able to compete and rise to the occasion when the opponent is at least perceived as better than you. I'm not necessarily sure that Switzerland was, but when he was put under pressure from a defensive standpoint, if you can't get that right first and foremost, then there's a problem. So much so that a lot of the talk after the game, I don't know if you saw this, Masi, was how are we going to adjust to enable Serginho Dest to be in his best and most com comfortable position? So, I mean... I want him to to play defense and to be a good right back or a left back when he is on the field. And it doesn't mean that he he can't go forward. And look, he is he is phenomenal. He is dynamic. He uh, he had a couple of our, uh, of opportunities on that left hand side where he you know was shaking and baking and doing some uh, doing some wonderful things. But if on the other side you are going to get that weakness, then at the worst possible time, usually you're going to get uh, you're going to you're going to you're going to have some problems with his ability to not. Uh, defend. I do think that he can defend, but this was not a good uh, a good day for him. Brendan Aronson was fun to see. I mean, he's very active and he moves around. Um, I do think that from a physical perspective, Switzerland looked bigger. They, I think, they were bigger. I think they were more imposing in terms of what uh, in what they were doing, but still without losing the technical ability, especially to play through that press when it comes. But but Mossy, if if at the first sign of challenge or problems, 
Greg Berhalter abandons and betrays what he believes is the right path forward, then once again, I ask you the question, is it really an identity? And I'm, look, I'm not saying that you, that you do things that are dumb, but isn't the whole point of hiring Greg Berhalter is that we don't, not we, I'm just saying the United States Soccer Federation doesn't want that pragmatic approach any, anymore and wants to risk more. No, absolutely. I think Greg Berhalter should stay on the path he's on, but look to make improvements within that. And, and you know, going back to Sergio Dest, I know Taylor Twelman made it clear he's very intrigued by this 3-4-1-2 formation that the U.S. Uh, tested out in March because he thinks that protects Sergio Dest more. And, and, and the back three is very in vogue around the world right now. A, a sure. team that just, just won the Champions League plays with it, and we'll, we'll get to that in, in a minute. But um, so that is something to think about. The other thing would be, I do worry about not having a reliable backup for Tyler Adams because, you know, the U.S., we should say, had some very notable missing players in this game and Tyler Adams and Pulisic and DK and Stefan. And and Tyler Adams is the one that seems most irreplaceable at yep. this point, and, and which is unfortunate because he is very injury prone. So the empirical evidence points to the fact that he's going to not be there fairly often over the next few years. And so uh, the U.S. does need to uh, uncover a reliable, dependable backup for Adams that allows him to play more or less the same way they would play if he was on the field. Well, okay. So uh, Greg Berhalter and company have uh, now taken a plane uh, over to the United States because the next couple of games, as you mentioned, are CONCACAF Nations League. First up, the semifinal against uh, Honduras. And if they win that, they would then play the winner of Mexico versus Costa Rica in the quote-unquote final of uh, the Nations League. So these are these are two good games against uh, quality opponents from CONCACAF, the likes of which we are going to see in the octagonal, which uh, comes up this uh, this fall. You know, so I, I think, obviously, to your point, the level of competition is different when it comes to playing against Honduras. But, you know, Mexico is out there. And I think everybody, including U.S. fans, want to get that shot at Mexico in a game that means something in that uh, final. Uh, those semifinal games... Uh, starting on June 3rd, Thursday, June 3rd. Once again, Honduras versus the U.S. That's the first game at, uh, what is it, uh, 7.30 Eastern. And then the second game is Mexico versus Costa Rica, which would be at 10 p.m. Uh, uh, Eastern. And those, both of those games are in Denver, right, Mossy? Correct. Okay. Yeah, and I would say Honduras is better than some of those friendly opponents I mentioned earlier, but not as good as Switzerland. So it's sort of an in-between, uh, but they're a dangerous opponent. Uh, the U.S. will come up against some of the guys that played in that CONCACAF uh, Olympic qualifying tournament back in March. Guys like Kervin Ariaga and Edwin Rodriguez, Rigoberto Rivas, uh, Albert Elise uh, would be the big danger man up front. So uh, they could cause some problems, but still, it's a game if the U.S. plays well, they should win which would mean moving on to the final where, uh, to your point, if I was a U.S. fan, I would root for Mexico to be in the final because in this process of building up towards World Cup qualifying, I, I think a game against Mexico is more meaningful than a trophy. So even though Costa Rica would be theoretically the easier opponent, uh, with all due respect to the CONCACAF Nations League, I don't view that as such a prestigious trophy that you're, you're going to get wrapped up in that. that. The significance here is the chance to play Mexico in a meaningful game. And so I think that's what, if you're a U.S. fan, that's what you should be pining for. Plus, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's also a bracketed friendly after the CONCACAF Nations League against exactly. Costa Rica. So you would you would not want to play the same team 
twice. And look, any chance we get to have a U.S.-Mexico game, that's uh, that's going to be something. So look, this is not this is not doom and gloom. This was a nice little punch in the face, if you will, uh, in the nose by by Switzerland to remind Greg Berhalter and this U.S. team that even with all of the confidence and the the fair and right optimism that we have regarding all of this talent, there is still a lot of work to do. And there, there's a lot of talent out there that can cause us problems, especially in this way that we are playing. So some questions as to the formation and if we are going to adjust to accommodate somebody like Serginho Dest and get the best out of him uh, going forward with that press as to whether we continue to uh, to do that. And by the way, the opposite side, although we didn't see it a, a whole lot because Switzerland didn't necessarily press it in the way the U.S. was, if and when uh, a U.S. team playing out of the back and being committed to playing out of the back comes up against a press, I guess a press the, the likes of which the U.S., uh, we've seen with the U.S., and how a U.S. team um, is able to deal with that and break that press. Because Switzerland, once they started figuring out the mathematics and the angles of that press, once they get, they came the, they came through, there were a lot of opportunities uh, for them to to score, and you know that's what you're hoping to do. If you break that press, then there's all sorts of space and time and angles for you to uh, to transition into the into the attack. And you know we'll see, we'll see going forward how that press looks like from the U.S. Uh, in terms of how they press and also coming out of uh, coming out of the back. All right, should we so move on to uh, some MLS headlines, Mossy? Yep. All right. Uh, first off, our friend, speaking of uh, U.S. men's national team, uh, a U.S. men's national team, great, Josie Altidore up there. Look, there's been a lot of talk, uh, and so this is nothing new, and a lot of the rumor uh, mill has been filled with where is Josie going to go if he is going to get traded? Is there another team? Is his time in Toronto up? Well, we come to find out that he is no longer being part of the first team, and there's this phenomenon in soccer we all often have where either – you know, a player uh, has done something or, um, you know, is being punished or <laughs> is sent to the uh, sent to his room, basically, in the form of training on his own. OK, so we come to find out through reporting that Josie Altador is no longer with the first team and is, you know, quote unquote, training um, on his uh, on his own. Now, I don't know what that what that entails, especially with Josie's injury record right now. He has a hard enough time just consistently training with the team and now he's training on his own. And and how does this ultimately look? You know, sometimes it looks like players coming in at different times than the the first team in which you would normally associate them. Sometimes it actually means that they're training in completely s- separate areas of the training facility on their own on their own field. Sometimes it's it's punitive in that you are hoping to make that player as miserable as possible, and you are hoping from a strategic perspective either to have them sign a, a different contract or to get out of their contract or something like that. There's all sorts of ways that, that this happens. But it's, it's become very, very clear that the Josie Altidore situation right now with Toronto is, uh, is not good. And it doesn't look like it's getting, it's getting any better. And the problem for Toronto is that everybody knows this now and sees this now and knows that they, you know, they want to do some sort of deal. And I don't know ultimately how this gets sorted out. Look, it's not good for Toronto because you have a person that you're paying a lot of money who's a designated player who is not on your field and helping you. And by the way, 
Toronto uh, is not doing well right now, and they are struggling for results under Chris Armas. And it remains to be seen whether they will come out of this, but you need all guns blazing. And if Josie Altidore is not going to be a part of it going forward, you got to figure out a way to, to, to get out of that deal or get that deal done and cut your losses. And you're going to lose. There are going to be losses because of how public this is and what's going on right now. Uh, what else, Mossy, when it comes to some MLS headlines out there? Well, uh, do you want to stay with Toronto? Because uh, this has been just an absolute train wreck of a season so far. They lose to Columbus. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, Chris Armas, I know they've had a lot of injuries, but you do wonder if if they have the squad that's equipped to play his uh, style, which we are just talking about it with the U.S., this mm-hmm. sort of aggressive, high-pressing style he wants to play, and it just doesn't seem suited to the players they have. And so uh, he might need a, a major rethink there, but then it begs the question, why hire a, a coach like him if you're not going to play his preferred style. Yeah. I mean, what, what I had hoped when Chris Armas was hired and still may come to fruition is that him being uh, unburdened and unshackled of the, the Red Bulls way would provide an opportunity to see Chris Armas in a, in a, in a different light, especially with the talent that, uh, uh, that Toronto has. Mossy, let me ask you a question. Cause somebody asked me before we did the show on Twitter about the Canadian teams. And, and a, there's a part of me that, you know, look, everybody has gone through difficulties and challenges, but it seemed to be a much more of a collective challenge last season when it came to Major League Soccer. And so there was a, a fairness in the way that we judged it. And yet this year, where all the MLS teams have gone back to their markets, some of them are playing in front of full stadiums. So not quite normal, but as close to normal as we've seen in over a year, as opposed to the Canadian teams, which have had to once again, uh, make their home base in the continental uh, United States. Uh, so we have Montreal and, and Toronto and their home, quote unquote, home being in Florida, and then uh, Vancouver, their home being uh, in, in Utah. Is it even fair for us to judge Canadian teams this year because of the unique aspects of the challenges that they are facing and, and, and in particular them relative to everybody else? No, that's fair. They definitely have it the worst right now. So they, they, they need to be greater on a curve. I will say Montreal are much higher in the standings than Toronto. So if you do that, compare and contrast. Yeah. Uh, but, but still, that doesn't take away from everything that Toronto is dealing with. So th- that is absolutely fair. It needs to be thrown into the conversation. Uh, so that's why I think that the players uh, and I think the coaches are all going to be given a pass. Uh, for this year. And, and look, I hope that it changes and, and things start to change and they, they get to go back to uh, their Canadian markets and uh, and their fans right now. What's up, Moss? I will say, though, uh, I am enamored of Greg Vanny. You know, we, we cover these MLS games and we get to talk to these coaches ahead of these games. And uh, and most all of them are, 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 are great to deal with, very pleasant, enjoyable to talk to. But Greg Vanny is like number one of my power rankings of that. I, I always enjoy our chats with him. And you look at this season, uh, the impact – uh, he his arrival has had on when one franchise and the impact his departure has right. had on another when you talk about a guy who I know it's a small sample we're just it's less than 10 games into the season but just <laughs> how much he's enhanced his reputation even more just looking at the right. before and after here oh my god yeah I mean look they're, they're they are flying they got another uh, another win should we get to the Miami situation Mossy because this was a a, a big story that broke at the end of, uh, of last week now we had talked about it for for a while, because we knew that there was going to be some sort of uh, of punishment for Miami for cheating, for breaking the rules when it comes to the way 
in which they signed the players and the way for which they accounted for the players last year uh, and their designated players. So uh, ultimately, the decision comes down uh, at the end of last week, as is as often happens. Okay, so for uh, cheating, these are this is what Major League Soccer has decided for Inter Miami. David Beckham's Inter Miami. They are fined two million dollars. All right. They uh, have a reduction uh, by two million two hundred around two million two hundred two hundred thousand dollars of allocation money for both 22 and 23. Their former COO and sporting director, Paul McDonough, is suspended from MLS uh, related activity for both 2021, the rest of 2021, and 2022. Um, but keep in mind that uh, Paul McDonough had gone to Atlanta, and they have since parted ways with this news. And uh, managing owner Jorge Mas is fined $250,000. So look, there's a lot of zeros when it comes to the money out there. I was asked this question last night on air, but I'm going to ask you first, Mossy. Was this, did, did the punishment fit the crime? Yes, and it could have even been harsher. I know there's this argument, it's probably one that you're going to make in a moment, um, that we shouldn't discourage teams from spending money. But I just think the whole concept of parity is so ingrained, and it's what MLS has been built on. And you hear MLS folks say all the time, we do not want to become like European soccer, where certain clubs have much more money than others. And that's what dictates who wins and who doesn't. We want to at least have a semblance of a level playing field. It's what's helped make the NFL the most popular sports league in this country. And I know MLS really, really values that. And so this was such a brazen effort to, to circumvent all that, that um, yes, I, I do want this league to be ambitious and spend money and sign good players, but you still have to do it within the bound. Look, if, if, if clubs disagree with, uh, the rules and they think they're being restricted too much, we can have that conversation. I know you've made that point at times that maybe MLS should loosen up some of the restrictions, but given what the restrictions are, you can't have certain teams working around that and paying DP money to players without them counting towards DP slots. So I think what Inter Miami did was majorly problematic and deserved to be harshly. No, 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 no. Listen, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, and, and as I've said many, many times in, in other contexts, you can't be a little pregnant. So um, you know, they were found to have violated the rules. And by the way, the violations included, included incorrect roster categorization for players like Blaise Matuidi and Andre Reyes, by the way. So it come, we come to find out that not only did they have four designated players, but they had five designated players at a certain point. Um, and then also undisclosed agreements that resulted in the underreporting of salary budget amounts for a number of, uh, a number of players. Now, I think that this was, uh, th so I do think that this was appropriate in terms of the, the, the punishment. But I also think that this was incredibly dumb. Uh, and this was an incredibly dumb, self-inflicted wound from David Beckham's Inter Miami. And uh, let the, you know, and, and so, you know, I said last night, um, I don't want to deter teams from spending money. And by the way, MLS doesn't want to deter teams from spending money. They bend over backwards and give you every opportunity and are very, very fluid and liberal in their application of their quote unquote rules and regulations out there to enable teams to spend money. 
yes, within reason uh, to your point. But let the let the MLS team that has not sinned cast the first stone. And I think what this really shows is that when whatever the violations ultimately were, uh, it, it went it was beyond the pale because for years, as I said, you have been able to do things. You have been able to judge the situation to benefit your team. Because I think from an ownership standpoint, people have recognized it does mean no good to scream and yell about parity and competitive balance. And in, and in doing so, shoot myself in the foot and you know, bite off my nose to spite my face, all those different uh, cliches that we can throw out there. Because if somebody is wanting to spend money to improve the quality of the product out there, then it, inc it increases the quality and the product of Major League Soccer. And so I want to in encourage that within reason. And I think everybody understands that, which brings me to my next question. And I think the most important part of the question and the part of the question that was conveniently not answered. And I asked the league about this and they have yet to get back to me. Uh, and that question is, is this, how did MLS find out about these violations? How were they informed? Who informed them? I think that that's an important 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 question to ask i don't have the answer i don't have the answer to that because you know as i said before and I, look i i have I, I have been there i have been in times where either i've been at a team where i have benefited from the ability to be flexible and to do things and i've been on the other side too where i've looked over and said you know what something's not right over there but not to the extent where i'm willing to you know, uh, scream and yell and bring it to the attention. Because once again, I looked at, at the bigger picture and recognized that there are things that are done that maybe that aren't necessarily exactly to the letter of the law. But this had to have been, as I said before, so egregious that somebody said, no, this, this, this cannot stand. And to your, to your point, Masi, yes, you do want rules and regulations to be uh, to be followed. You know, I, our, our friend Stuart Holden yesterday said, and this brings up the other point, is that not only was it dumb, but they couldn't even cheat well, if there is a way to cheat well. They didn't get anything out of uh, ultimately. Or what they did get, they, they got taken, okay, in terms of the amount of money and uh, as it comes out, the amount of violations that they had to barely get into the playoffs uh, last year and then to bomb out uh, in the playoffs. And look, I, I want Miami to be good. MLS is better when David Beckham's inter-Miami is good. And we also saw, speaking of David Beckham and all the owners, completely washed their hands of, not well, not completely washed their hands because there was some fines, but MLS went in their statement, went out of their way to point out that none of the players knew about what was going on, okay? And players, whether they did or not, they're not going to care. Just pay me my money. <laughs> I don't care how it gets to me. Uh, it's, all, it's all the same worth, so they're not, they're not going to care. So if they knew or not, they're, they're not going to care. And that none of the, uh, uh, you know, the ownership and, and certainly the ownership that cooperated with this investigation um, knew about what was happening, even though they take responsibility uh, responsibility for it. And they even put them in name out there. So look, it's not a good look for David Beckham's Inter-Miami. Uh, it's certainly not a good look for the ownership there. And especially when you don't get much out of it. And then you follow it up this weekend playing in front of 
uh, a packed house for the first time, a sellout in your uh, in your Fort Lauderdale Stadium, and you get your ass kicked three nothing by DC United, who came into came into town. And this is DC United, by the way. So problems on the field and problems off the field for David Beckham's Inter Miami. What, what, what were your thoughts on this? And we'll, we'll move on to something else. Well, to go back to how the league found out, there was a famous incident in the NBA involving the Minnesota Timberwolves and a player named Joe Smith. He was the Blaze Matweedy, I suppose, of, the, of that situation. <laughs> and uh, it was a disgruntled agent who was involved at the time and then later was fired by Joe Smith. And so he had an ax to grind. And so he told the league, uh, I don't know if that's what happened here, but that's just one theory out there. Um I think it's part of this. I think it's part of the story, and I'm I'm curious as to ultimately uh, how it all happened. I'm not sure I'll be, I'll ever be told, or we'll ever ever truly find out ultimately what happened. And, you know, and I will say this: the um, you know the decision, and we'll, we'll finish it here. The decision to uh, suspend Paul McDonough. Uh, I know Paul McDonough. I think everybody in soccer knows Paul McDonough, and he has done some great work. Although this is certainly not a good look for him, and it brings up questions about Atlanta, where he uh, where he has worked, uh, and other things that he has done. If this was habitual, was this being done for many years, and now it's just it's just come to come to light. But it does look like, uh, at least from the outside, once again, that he's a scapegoat for all of this, um, and that plenty of others were aware of what was going on and that somebody had to take uh, the fall and that Paul McDonough takes the fall. Not that he's not culpable and, and that, that, that he's not responsible for the decisions that were made and being part of uh, the breaking of the rules here. And if you're, if you're going to cheat, you have to, you know, you're weighing the risk of ultimately getting caught and, um, they were caught, but ultimately the one person paying the real price is Paul McDonough, who's not going to be allowed to work in a sport and league, well, in a league that he has been incredibly successful for. And there's a reason why people have hired him and rehired him. It's because uh, of his uh, abilities. Now, um, what happens because he's allowed to uh, I want to make sure I, uh, I get this right. He can petition the office of the commissioner after March 1st, 2022, to review the suspension. I, I would think he would probably get res, reduced at that time. But you're still, you're keeping a guy from uh, from working in Major League Soccer who has had incredible success. And he's the one that I think pays the ultimate price. The money thing, I mean, I'm not saying that money isn't, isn't important, but and these aren't big numbers, but if you're just going to pay a fine, I mean, he's paying a real personal and human cost to his actions and the actions of uh, uh, of the team. So, all right, Masi. Um, there was still wonderful stuff also that happened when it comes well, there's, to... Well, there's three more games I want to highlight if you're... Okay, go, go. Uh, Sporting KC beat Houston 3-2. to two. Did you see Gianluca Buzio's free kick? I did. Uh, that's your AT&T goal of the week winner uh, for sure. Uh, and he's a wonderful player. I do get a... Is he a wonderful player? I do get a Weston McKinney Schalke vibe in that I'd like him to figure out what his position is. You know, this whole playing in a million different places is nice, but eventually you got to figure out what you are. And then the other one I want to highlight is a game we covered yesterday. Uh, well, hold, Philadelphia. On, hold on, hold on. Before you go, I'll, I'll stay with, uh, with Busio because you said he's a wonderful player. Is he a wonderful player? I do think he's very talented, yes. Okay, but like how talented? Are we talking Brendan Aronson talented? Um, I mean, is is 
and, and if he's so talented, is he going to go at some point? And where is he going to go? Where do you where do you put him there in this uh, in yeah, this incredible moment been, of talent that we have? No, I I think yeah. I mean, Aronson, that's a, about that level, and, he, and, okay. and there's already been some interest from Syria. So yeah, I yep. think he'll definitely go in the next couple of years. So um, yeah, no, I I like him. And, and Sporting KC after a so-so start to the season, there they are in second place, two yep. points beyond Seattle. Peter Vermes, uh, and then second place in the East is Philadelphia, who thumped Portland. And and how about again <laughs> the job Jim Curtin's doing? Might he win Coach of the Year two? Uh, years in a row. Is that possible? I mean, we, we talked about Aronson and McKenzie starting for the U.S. national team. He loses both those players, so he has to reinvent going into the season. He has to deal with CCL. And by the way, they're the only MLS team still alive in the semifinals. And and, and here they are in, in second place in the East and, and doing well in MLS as well. They've won four of their last five. Uh, Jabilco can't stop scoring. Uh, you know, Montero's been very good this season. So it's He's, that guy is terrific, Coach. The only thing that I can fault Jim Curtin for is his dress, okay, is uh, <laughs> his attire. And even that, there are plenty of people that disagree with me. He's, he's wonderful. And, you know, I've told you, know, we've talked before on the pod about the quality that I think Jim Curtin is, both as a, as a coach and a, uh, uh, and a man. And so I'm happy that he is doing well. And they just spanked Portland. And you know me, I talk about set pieces, set pieces, set pieces. Set pieces are the are to soccer what water is to life, right? You need it to survive, but it can also kill you. And man, oh man. Uh, and, and there's sometimes where you you see there's a problem with set pieces in a game. And then very, very quickly within the game, the team and, and the coach correct it, right? And yet it didn't happen. Set piece after set piece, whether they scored or not, it, they were they were being dangerous. And Portland had nothing. Jeremy Abobasi, who was evidently supposed to mark Shabilko at times, wasn't even close to him and what was really, really struggling. And, you know, people ask me sometimes about marking on set pieces. If you mark man to man, or even if you don't, by the way, oftentimes the tradition is you, you put these big white sheets up in the locker room and they literally will say who your responsibility is on set piece in terms of, of marking. And so there should be no confusion. Now, if you mark zone, there's also a, a you know, a, a, a picture of exactly the, the zone that you are in. It's a little more, you can hide a little bit more when it's zone, but you can't hide when it's man, when it's man to man. And by all accounts, in, when it comes to Portland, there was a man, there was some man to man marking that was supposed to go on that didn't, uh, that didn't happen. So just a, a huge performance from, uh, from Philadelphia and a Portland team that we know is banged up, but they just had no answer from the start. So congratulations to the Philadelphia Union and to Jim Curtin. Um, but get yourself, I mean, you know, the hoodie thing. Come on, man. <laughs> Uh, and then last game I want to mention is uh, this coastal battle, NYCFC knocking off LAFC 2-1. to one. LAFC was the better team for most of this game, but didn't put away their chances, so they were only up 1-0 in the second half. They left the door open, and lo and behold, NYCFC made some changes, improved, and ended up scoring twice at the end, and they win 2-1. Uh, the, the winning goal coming after they had gone down the man, uh, red card, so uh, very nice win for them, and and. LAFC still can't get themselves completely sorted, huh? They can't. And, you know, Bob Bradley, uh, who, who was a man of few words, but when he speaks, um, you know, he cuts to the core. Even after the game, you, you could tell he just, you know, he has no hair to pull out, but he, he's, I, I think he's a little just confused as to why things aren't 
uh, aren't happening. I think I think a lot of us are because I think that this team should be better. And I think that they that they will be better. But you know, you start dropping games uh, at home. So a big win for NYCFC at LAFC. Uh, the other LA team, and you mentioned uh, Greg Vanny. They just continue to go along. He's got the touch. Uh, the Midas touch, uh, even when things aren't necessarily happening. LA versus San Jose, the Galaxy get a win at home against their longtime and traditional rivals in uh, in San Jose, the uh, Cali Classico, if you will, on an own goal. But they will, they will take that own goal. You put the ball in dangerous positions and things could happen. Own goal, Galaxy get, uh, get away with the win and the three points there, and they just continue to uh, cruise along. Caden Clark, speaking of teenagers, he continues to score with the Red Bulls uh, as they hand Orlando their first loss. And then Jossie Zardes, who has not had a great start to the season, uh, scores his 50th goal for the crew in their win over Toronto. And we've talked about the... Uh, the troubles that Toronto has had. Anything you want to hit on there, Mossy, before we head out? Uh, no, that's it. All right. So uh, from an MLS perspective, they now take a, what amounts to kind of a three-week break here. And so um, I was talking to Sarah Walsh and she was asking me what these players do. Now, obviously it's an international break. So if you are playing international, you're getting on a plane this morning or yesterday and you're heading off to whatever port of call it is to, uh, to play. It could be uh, national team, um, CONCACAF national teams, uh, you know, and a call me bowl. And uh, you got uh, Copa America, which we're going to talk about later on in the show. So all sorts of international aspects going on. But with this type of lengthy period off, what many teams will do is first and foremost, give some time off to the players and that, you know, enable, I mean, I'm talking about multiple days because you can afford to do that. I'm not talking about weeks or anything like that, but multiple days so that if players want to get away, if players want to get quote unquote home or to their other home or see family and that kind of stuff, they are, it enables them to do that in a way that you can't do it during a week to week type of uh, scenario in the season. But then they will very quickly bring them back. And a lot of coaches will use this time to, either adjust or to reinforce concepts that they had in preseason that oftentimes it's very difficult in the course of a week um, to drill down on. And so this time actually gives teams an opportunity to assess. And so teams that are doing well, they're going to continue obviously to do what they are doing and teams that aren't, they're going to really look to say, what have we done wrong and how do we fix it? Cause now we have the time uh, to fix it, albeit without some of the, uh, the main and, and key ingredients because the players will be on international duty. So um, we'll, we'll look to see what these MLS teams, when they return, have changed and how they look going forward. And it's almost the, the end of a chapter, if you will, within this season. And things will change. They change in normal seasons, but certainly in MLS, because of that parity, they also um, they just tend to change. And as good as you were in that first chapter, it doesn't necessarily mean in this upcoming chapter that you're going to be able to parlay it or continue it uh, going forward. And there will be those that we are talking about in a very different way when that next chapter is finished. All right, we're going to take a real quick break. When we come back, oh yeah, we're going to go around the rest of the world because there was a lot of stuff that happened this last week. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're back, and there's all sorts of stuff that happened this last week uh, around the rest of the world, and we're going to get to Europe. But first off, first off, we're going to deal with some breaking news, and that is uh, Copa America. Uh, 
which we are excited to give you over at uh, Fox. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's been touch and go as to where this tournament is actually going to happen. Mossy, run us through the, the places that <laughs> that we're going to host it and now where we find ourselves. Originally, it was going to be co-hosted by Colombia and Argentina, and then Colombia dropped out both due to COVID and also the unrest in the country. There's all sorts of protests going on right now against the country, against the government. So then uh, for a couple of days there, all the stories were that it would be held entirely in Argentina, but Argentina have pulled out altogether. And so that left everything in limbo, but it was announced today. We're taping this Monday morning. So this is very fluid. So who knows by the time you listen to this podcast, there could be other twists and turns to the story. But the latest is that the tournament will be held in its entirety in Brazil, which is the same location of the last Copa America in 2019. I mean, look, this just highlights the surreal moment, when I say moment, year, over a year that we have been living in. Because in normal circumstances, you would just be flabbergasted at, I mean, this is two weeks notice, right? <laughs> We're going to turn around a major tournament. And yet, it doesn't really surprise anybody that we are going to do this. You know, interesting thing is for, for many years, because there was talk about possibly the U.S. hosting this. And the reason why was because for so many years, the U.S., one of the things that they've done in, in their selling of um, the, uh, the opportunity to host tournaments is that we're turnkey. I mean, we even saw a, a Women's World Cup basically prove that and take over the hosting uh, of a Women's World Cup. But because of this existing infrastructure and because of the organization that, uh, that we have over here, we, we are turnkey, uh, much more so than other countries. Uh, but certainly they believe that, uh, that Brazil can figure out how to do this in two weeks. And, you know, this is the, this, this strange spirit um, and belief that has emerged over the last year that, you know what, we're going to roll with things and we will figure it out. We will adjust. I mean, these players that were done with their European season that play for national teams in South America, I, I guess they're just flying to wherever their home country is for camp and then just kind of waiting to figure out where to go. Well, there's uh world cup qualifiers uh, to be played this week. So they're, they're, Focusing on that, so we will have two right, rounds. But they don't of know South where they they haven't known where they were going after that. Right. They, they, after that, it was in limbo until now, I guess. Um, and yeah, so a few more details here. Ironically, what played to Brazil's advantage was the fact that they uh, some of the stadiums that uh, were built for the 2014 World Cup are not being used. So <laughs> that's where they're going to put the games. Because bear in mind, the Brazilian. Uh, championship, which just started this past weekend, is not going to stop. So those games are still going to be occurring simultaneous to this tournament. So Comebol has to work around the Brazilian championship. They're still hoping to hold the final at the Maracanã if they can make the dates work. But uh, the idea is to have one group based in Brasilia, capital of the country. They're going to play their games at the Mané Gahincha Stadium, a, a stadium I attended 2014. It was the last group game against Cameroon, which Brazil won 4-1. Cameroon was so bad, Fred even scored in that game. Um, <laughs> and then the other group will be uh, somewhere in the Northeast, possibly Natal. Um, 
And so the details are still forthcoming, uh, but the, the one thing they've said is they want to keep the, the same dates that were originally planned, which would be uh, June 13th until July 10th. And, and also the, the Brazilian Federation saying that they're not going to stop the Brazilian championship. So there is going to be this issue of working around that. But nevertheless, that's the plan right now. Brasilia and Natal, possibly. Well, look, we, we know that the, the world in which we live in right now is far from perfect. And your ability to kind of roll with the changes um, is important for all of us. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to do it from a broadcast perspective. And certainly the players and the teams and the coaches involved are also going to, uh, uh, going to do that. But we're looking forward to it because it is a special tournament and things happen. And maybe in this unique tournament. I mean, look, we, we did a unique one a few years ago when we, uh, uh, when we hosted uh, the Centenario. And so maybe in this unique type of situation, some amazing things can, uh, can come out. So we're, we're still excited about what's, uh, what's going to happen. And as I said, we'll, we'll bob and weave and we'll figure it out as we go along. All right, Mossy, what else? Uh, are we done with Copa? We can move on to. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's uh, since it's so fluid. I I just don't want to. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk we'll, about uh, something and then have it be done. Next week we'll do an actual tournament yes. preview uh, because then it'll be closer to the start of the tournament and the squads will be finalized and we can really dig into everything. Uh, but yeah, first order of business in Comebol is these two uh, rounds of South American of World Cup qualifying coming up. So we'll see where we are after all of that. Uh, but yeah, let's uh, transition to. Shall we do the two big European finals? Yes, of course, doing? of course. And, and I am going to talk uh, a little bit more about, uh, about Christian Pulisic um, in our Ask Alexi segment. So, um, you know, when we're talking about Chelsea and obviously Chelsea winning Champions League, well, first and foremost, I mean, and it, as I said before, it, it has to warm the cockles of your heart. And it certainly warms the cockles of my American redheaded heart to see, as we said last week, Americans, two Americans in the final with Zach Steffen with Man City and Christian Pulisic in the final, but also to see, you know, Christian Pulisic get on the field and ultimately for Chelsea, this team that it's an amazing year in terms of the story, uh, find a way past uh, yet again, past Manchester City to win Champions League. Congratulations to uh, to Chelsea, and congratulations to uh, Christian Pulisic, who is who has made us all so proud. Whether there are fans back in the United States or all over the world, um, you know, has made uh, made us so proud of everything that he has done. And it was a it was a heartwarming and wonderful thing to see and to see him with his parents and to see the celebrations uh, and, you know, the surreal aspect of it that you could, <laughs> that you could see in his, in his eyes and in his uh, mannerisms as he tried to wrap his, his, uh, his mind around the fact that what he, uh, what he just did. But from a Chelsea perspective, I mean, this is a pretty amazing Turnaround. Now, look, this isn't just some little rinky-dink team. <laughs> this is a team that spent a tremendous amount of money and has tremendous talent. And I think ultimately when, when, when all is said and done, that yes, Chelsea is the winner, but the, the biggest winner, in my mind, Tuchel. I mean, if, I don't know if people had doubts, but if there ever was a doubt, those were, those were put to rest in terms of the value that he brings and the quality that this man has uh, when it comes to managing and coaching. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, this elevates him right up there. It's one of the top handful of coaches in the world up there with Pep and Klopp. And, and to beat Pep three times in this short period of time is an amazing achievement. Uh, and we should talk about Pep for a second because, uh, listen, I, I know they had lost uh, twice to Chelsea recently. So, yeah, maybe you think you try something differently this time. But the different thing he tried was pretty weird <laughs> to 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 put out that midfield without a pivot player. And it was it was funny, the evolution here, because when they played Chelsea in the FA Cup semifinal, he started Hodri and Fernandinho. He started a double pivot. And then when they faced him in the Premier League recently, he started just Hodri. And then this game, he didn't start either. And, and he relegated Ilkay Gundogan, who was their leading scorer this season, to that role. Uh, and, you know, it, listen, when it, when it happens three times, uh, it's not a fluke. There's something about the way Chelsea plays that makes City uncomfortable. They don't let them settle in. They disrupt their rhythm. They don't let them exert the same level of control that we're used to seeing from Manchester City. They never look comfortable in that game to me. Uh, I thought Chelsea was the better team in the first half. Possession was pretty even, and they had the better chances, so they were good value for that 1-0 lead. And then, yeah, they sat back in the second half, but it wasn't like they were holding on for dear life. They defended very comfortably in that second half. City didn't create a whole lot. The best chance of the second half was Pulisic's on on the counterattack that he missed. So uh, fully deserved. I agree with you. Credit to Tuchel and, and credit to this whole Chelsea team. They did a wonderful, wonderful job. So fully deserved that victory. All right. When it comes to Pep, did he once again overthink it in that? I mean, I feel like Pep hears everything that people say. And there's almost something that he he can't control, that he has to do something. And maybe if it was spurred even more by the fact that everybody's saying it. And so he said, well, screw you. I am going to do something different and prove that it's it's not this habitual type of thing that is, uh, you know, it's albatross hanging around uh, around my neck. I mean, because you can't justify it, right? You can't justify uh, ultimately what happened there. I mean, does, no, I, I also, does, does this hurt? I, I mean, does this hurt ultimately your perception of Pat? Yeah, no, I mean, he's, he's a, he's a great manager. The overall body of work is impressive, but he does have this issue of overthinking it in big games. So it's absolutely a knock on him that has to be part of the conversation when, when you evaluate him as a coach. So uh, no, I mean, the other thing too, I don't, I don't understand his fascination with Zinchenko at left back. I think that guy is so average. I don't know how João Cancelo doesn't get on the field in that game. Um, and then even the order in which he brought in the strikers. Now, look, I'm Brazilian, so I'm biased towards Gabriel Jesus, but even I recognize that Sergio Aguero is the more likely of the two to conjure up a goal out of nothing. And at that point, you got to sort of throw tactics out the window and just get one of the great goal scorers in world football in the last decade on the field and see if he can pull a rabbit out of his hat. And, and he waited way too long to bring Aguero on. Um, so that was, that was an issue for me too. So there were several things there, but the main one was that, that midfield from the start, not playing a pivot player, I thought was very strange. Okay. But you're not of, of the opinion that the emperor has no clothes, uh, when it comes to Pep. I mean, you, you still look at him as, as one of the greats and certainly he's going to go down as one of the greats for what he has done. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you get these over the top reactions also, you know, Every year when Manchester City or PSG get knocked out of the Champions League, invariably I see these headlines, oh, blank amount of money spent, one point whatever billion, and zero Champions League titles. You know, people want to convince themselves that you could reduce it all to that and, and, and turn this whole thing into a failure. I mean, both the City and PSG projects, if you will, have been spectacular successes. If you look at what those clubs were before and what they've become, I mean, when the when 
when uh, Abu Dhabi took over in 2008, what the heck were Manchester City? They were a mid-table team in the Premier League. They hadn't won a league title in 40 years. And look at what they've become. All the, the trophies they've won, the caliber of players they're able to sign, the caliber of managers they're able to hire, how relevant they are. If you take that Alexi Lalas little chart that you've been doing with MLS of like brand and relevance and stars and all that, I mean, both City and PSG, they check off all those. But when the Qatari owners arrived, PSG, their star player was Guillaume Haral. And, and then and since then, they've had Zlatan and Neymar and Mbappe, uh, and, and they've won a zillion trophies. They're, they're in the knockout stages of the Champions League. Every, there's, there's four clubs that have been in the knockout stages of the Champions League the last nine seasons. Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern, and PSG. And they've gotten to semis and finals. And look, if they keep knocking on the door, they're going to eventually win it, I think. Until they do, okay, you can hang that over their head a little bit. But let's not act like this whole thing's been a failure because they haven't won a Champions League title yet. It's still been a massive success well, in terms of... But the, hold on, Moss. See, I mean, it's such elite company that it's, that it's not as if it's a massive field out there. And so if you're ultimately comparing yourself, if it's just five people or something like that, and your job is to be number one, or your your goal is to be number one, if there's five different people that have the ability uh, because of the amount of money that they spent to really do it realistically, and you're not number one, why is that's a failure? But the, the mere fact that, they, that you're in that rarefied air, you're, you're now one of but the But you just paid to be in that rarefied air. Then that's saying, where the competition begins. I'm just saying they, they've, those clubs have gotten a return on their investment. They got what they paid for. They went from nothing to becoming two of the handful of most relevant clubs in world football. Okay, they haven't won the Champions League. That's fair. But I'm just saying people act like until they win that trophy, this whole thing has been a colossal failure and all that money's gone to waste. You would agree. That's a little bit over the top. No, because that's what <laughs> money has been spent for, is to put you in that elite of elites. And there's only a, a handful of teams that actually are there. And so that's what you're being compared to. And if time and time again, in that comparison, you don't show up, then that's a failure. <laughs> so spend more money or do whatever you have to do. I mean, it's, you're, it's relative to the people that are on equal footing and the teams that are on equal footing uh, with you. Oh, my goodness, Mossy. Come on. But I'm not, uh, look, I'm not saying that they haven't changed and fundamentally changed the brand and that, you know, with that money, they haven't you know, evolved and, and grown and made it a business unlike anything that existed before. But with that money, you have just put yourself in a whole nother level. And it's a very, very select few that are able to be there. And so that's who you're competing with. You're not competing with anybody else. So if you if you can't compete in that you can't finish first, then yeah, that's a failure. Uh, okay, but switching gears, um, uh, Angolo Kante, another yes. fantastic performance, and there is a growing sentiment that he should win the Ballon d'Or. And you know, it's always a tough case to make when you're taking a player that's not a sexy, flashy, attacking. Uh, player that's going to put up these gaudy goal-scoring numbers. It's very rare for somebody that's not a, a playmaker or a striker to win these awards. But boy, you look at this year, the stars might be aligning for him, you know, particularly if France do well at the Euros and he has a good tournament there. Uh, I don't know. I think you could make a case for him. But do you think that's a huge stretch to, uh, in this world of Messi's, Ronaldo's, Lewandowski's, Mbappe's, Hollands to give the play, World Player of the Year award to N'Golo Kante? 
I used to scream and yell at Roy Wagerly when we played on the U.S. men's national team because I would, you know, break up a play or, you know, tackle or do whatever. And, you know, he would fluff his lines up top and, you know, miss a goal or something. I'd scream and say, oh, you know, we're, we're working our ass back, uh, ass off back here. Just put the damn ball in that. And, you know, he would always say it's easy to destroy, right? Uh, it, it, the difficult part is to create and I'm here to, uh, here to create. And so N'Golo Conte, we all recognize the value and he's one of the great players in the world, but I don't think that he is going to be looked at because he doesn't, he destroys more than he creates. Now in his destruction, as I said, there's incredible value. And there's unique value to what he does. And he does it better, better than everybody. And I'm not saying that he, he can't go forward and that he hasn't actually you know, shown that he can be, be more creative. But relative to others that, that create masterpieces uh, out there, I just think that he's always going to suffer. I'd love, you know, I'd love to see it, but I just don't think that those types of awards are reserved for the ones that create. Whether we agree with it or not, that's just how it works. And a guy who had his team won, I think, would have really elevated himself in that conversation would be De Bruyne and obviously City loss. And it was tough to watch him have to come off uh, the way he did. So hopefully he's all right and he can play the Euros for Belgium. But yeah, that was, I mean, he was the other sort of. Yeah, it's a big loss. That's a big loss for him and and potentially, uh, you know, as you said, for uh, for Belgium. And it ends up he, he cracked his orbitable, orbitable orbital uh, or whatever so uh that's not good that's not good so hopefully we get to see him back as uh, uh as soon as possible all right anything else uh champions league wise well do you want to save all the Pulisic stuff for ask Alexa? yeah yeah let's uh, let's say let's save it uh, for later yeah. You know? um yeah i mean there was another european final i mean it's a bit anticlimactic to talk about the europa league after talking about the champions league final but we should at least mention that uh Villarreal did uh defeat manchester united on penalties i got this one completely wrong i thought united would have no problem. Uh, this was not a great game. There were only three shots on target in 120 minutes. I fell asleep. Uh, <laughs> I fell asleep during the game I, on my couch and woke up right as the penalties were about to start. And uh, evidently, I didn't miss anything. And it's interesting because Sochar, who's famous, or I should say infamous for for waiting a long time before making any subs. Last season, when they lost to Sevilla in the semifinals, he waited until the 87th minute to make a change. This time around, his first change didn't come until the 100th minute. <laughs> he waited until extra time to make a substitution. And you know, it's funny because late in extra time, he made some changes clearly geared towards the shootout, bringing in guys like Juan Mata and Alex Delis. But one move he didn't make with the shootout in mind that perhaps he should have is changed goalkeepers because De Gea has an atrocious record stopping penalties. I think I read somewhere it was 21 in a row he had conceded going into that shootout. And so, you know, you, you think about that famous Louis van Hall, Tim Krul in the World Cup round of yep. 16, Netherlands, Costa Rica. And this might have been a situation for that where perhaps Solskjaer should have brought in Henderson for the shootout. He didn't. And De Gea, you know, didn't really come close to any of the penalties and then ends up missing himself. And lo and behold, Villarreal are your Europa League champions. I mean, look, okay, so so we see this. It, I mean, it's not just a penalty shootout. It's a legendary penalty shootout in terms of, first off, um, well, De Gea continued his incredible streak of letting penalties in, um, but everybody did. I mean, it was a it was a masterclass for going for for putting the ball in the back of the net. You know, I was, I, we've talked about this before in in terms of the the quote unquote fairness of deciding games like this. And as I've told you before, it, it is such a u- unique skill. And yes, I know it's kicking the ball, 
but it, it is it, it is a skill and an ability that is so separated from the actual game. Um, and once again, that's not to say that, that you shouldn't get credit when you have goalkeepers that are able to save it or shooters that are able to withstand the pressure. And there was a lot of pressure, and that's what made it so uh, made it so fun. But you're also you know, faced with a, a situation where, what is it, 80% of the, the penalties usually go in. And so the advantage is to, uh, I guess, is to the kicker in terms of the, the numbers. And you're just waiting for that goalkeeper to save one, which is ultimately uh, ultimately what we saw. But once again, I, I just think it, that if, if Manchester United wasn't a better team, okay, then this would be... You know, this I would have bigger problems uh, with this, but you know, this is—it's never should have come to this for for Manchester United right now, and this is not a good look for them. This is not a good look for for Ole uh, Gunnar uh, Solskjaer right now, and you know, when it comes down to goalkeepers kicking, that that was amazing. That was an amazing uh, an amazing moment. And did you feel bad for anybody? No, no. no. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, goalkeepers taking penalties always reminds me of pitchers hitting in baseball, just kind of the, the fish out of water kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, and, and very happy for Unai Emery, his fourth Europa League crown. He won three with Sevilla. Um, it's the first major trophy for Real, which, which is an incredible club. They come from a town of just 50,000 people and they've been punching above their weight for two decades now. And now they crown it with a major trophy. I did read in the Spanish media that, you know, this was karma that a team owned by the Glazers loses a final to a team owned by, you know, more of a community club in Villarreal. So there was that whole sort of super league oh, uh, element yes. hanging yeah. over this. So, I mean, I know you, you're already rolling your eyes, but well, we can find a way to blame the Americans for this, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, but yeah, it's now uh, four straight trophy list seasons for uh, United last trophy they won was uh, I want to say was the Europa League in uh, Mourinho's first season in 2017. So yeah, it's a problem. I mean, they've made progress. You know, they finished second in the Premier League. They get to a European final. So there's things that Solskjaer can point to. And I think if they make a couple of more signings, there'll be a big factor next season in the Premier League race. But uh, but still, you know, you, you'd, you'd like to get a trophy uh, to really sort of crown that you're heading in the right direction. All right, let's finish up with uh, the coaching carousel, okay? Because it's already started, right? I mean, uh, well, <laughs> we got all sorts of stuff going on. I mentioned a couple of year, uh, weeks ago that the coaching carousel was starting to percolate, but uh, the past few days have been truly extraordinary. Uh, now, it, it's it's been known for a couple of weeks that Zidane was going to leave Real Madrid. That was like the worst kept secret. And Allegri had emerged as the favorite. But what ended up happening here is, Allegri has been out a long time, longer than he wanted to stay out. And so he's a little paranoid that in this game of musical chairs, he could get left out again. And so Zidane took a few extra days before making his departure from Real Madrid official. And that was just enough for Allegri to get paranoid and say, I can't wait on this. You know, there are other opportunities on the table. I better hurry up and grab them. So he had two back in Italy. One was Juventus, which was trying to bring him back. Um, and the other was Inter, which all of a sudden became available because uh, the, the Chinese 
owners are having all sorts of financial issues uh, due to COVID. And so they've decided they're going to really have to cut back and sell players. And they had a meeting with Antonio Conte and laid all that out for him. And he said, well, I'm not sticking around for that. I mean, my, my idea after winning Serie A for you was to push on from here and sign players and try to compete for the Champions League title. And if you're telling me we're now going to take a step back, I don't want to be a part of that. So Antonio Conte walks out. So Inter's first thought was Allegri. And then he's also got Juventus pursuing him, Real Madrid possibly. And Allegri looked at all that and said, I'm going to take this safe option here and just go back to Juventus. Yep. And so that's what he did. And so uh, so in the absence of Allegri, Inter also hurried up hurried up and hired a new manager in Simone Inzaghi from Lazio, which is more of a conservative option, which is in line with a club that's taking a step back. They weren't going to go out after some big, sexy guy. Um, but now that leaves Real Madrid in this game of musical chairs. Um, and nobody knows who they're going to hire. Antonio Conti is now available. So in theory, that's an option. Although to me, that's just a horrible mix of, of pairing Antonio Conti in that sort of pressure cooker of Real Madrid and having to deal with Florentino Perez. And, and, and so I don't know about that. Um, well, who's, what's a good, who's a good mix with Florentino yeah, Perez? No, that's fair. And then, you know, ironically enough, had, had Allegri waited and taken – Real Madrid, I think the logical destination for Zidane would have been Juventus. Yep. Now Zidane doesn't have that. So people are wondering where he's going to end up. There, there's been these stories floating around. It's hard to figure out how true they are that Pochettino could already be on his way out of PSG. He doesn't get along with Leonardo. And there's been some talk about Real Madrid for him or possibly even going back to Spurs. And then everybody connected the dots on that and said, if Pochettino were to leave, maybe Zidane would go to PSG and that would be the perfect manager for them to try to win the Champions League. And with his man management, he could deal with Neymar and convince Mbappe to stay and all that. And so it's remarkable. And there's still this whole other shooter drop here, which is Barcelona, I guess, which with each passing day, maybe the chance to increase of Koeman staying, but I'm still assuming he's going to go. And, and so, yeah, you know, we, we, we'll, we'll wait and see on players and, and, and Messi and, and he's even talk about Ronaldo going. And so eventually this might become more about the players. But early on here in this offseason, it's been more about the managers. It's been a pretty remarkable, like I said, little coaching carousel here. All right. So first off, Allegri, um, I mean, this is a good situation at Juventus because he can come in and kind of return them. Right. I mean, you. It, it's hard for it, regardless of who you are to come into a situation that's already been incredibly successful. And so I think he sees an opportunity there. And, and to your point, there, uh, there's a comfort level, you know, Zidane, <laughs> I mean, he operates on a different plane. We all, we all know that. So who knows what he's going to do. He might've gotten up one day and just said, ah, I mean, he even he said how proud he was of this, this year, even though at least from the outside, it was, you know, not, not a successful year, but so I think he was very, very proud of what, what's happened. And to your point, I think, yeah, that Juventus thing, I think would have appealed to him, but also wouldn't put it past him, you know, again, just kind of taking those, those pep sabbaticals that, uh, that, uh, that we see uh, going forward. The Pochettino thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm here for that because that would be uh, amazing uh, to see to see him return, uh, and I'm sorry, yeah, to, to see him return. If if I mean, if that were to happen, if you know, the Atlantic is reporting that at least they're in they're in contact, but that would be also a you know a kind of admission that they got it wrong, and he would he would come back almost a conquering hero, uh, but then also be expected with a Spurs team that you know, potentially is going to be losing players. So um, while, while it might be 
appealing to kind of strut back into town and 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 show everybody you made a mistake town is is changed and it is changing when it comes to spurs it's funny too like the allure of the premier league i was listening to this uh premier league podcast uh, on the athletic, and these these two guys were talking about Nuno Espirito Santo leaving Wolves and who they might get as a replacement. And one of the guys, and I love this podcast, and they're actually as, as English pundits go, they're they're not that delusional about like seeing everything through Premier League goggles. These guys are actually not so bad as far as that goes. But this was a curious moment. One of the guys actually said, "Boy, you wonder if Jose Mourinho regrets taking the Roma job now that he knows that Wolves was available." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. But but yeah, I mean, uh, a couple of thoughts here. First of all, it's funny how whenever you fire and hire a manager at the same time, the firing part gets sort of buried and invariably all the headlines are about the guy coming in. So every every headline I read about Juventus last few days was about the fact that they had hired Allegri. Uh, There was very little attention paid to the fact that Andrea Pirlo, one of the great players in the history of the game, was given this opportunity and then after one season, that's it. He's out. And, and very little conversation about whether that's fair, unfair. Where does he go from here? You know, what, what do we learn out of that? You know what I mean? The, the Andrea Pirlo sacking got kind of swept under the rug here. There was, there's been very little analysis of that. And, 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 well, and, well, so what happens with Pirlo, you think? I don't know. I mean, this, this, this appointment was so out of nowhere that is he a guy that's really committed to having a managerial career? Is he, he's been, uh, Syria, by the way, has been the craziest when it comes to coaches, because I mean, you, uh, if you take like the eight biggest clubs, Milan and Atalanta are the only ones that didn't change managers. You've got Juventus, uh, Inter, Roma, Lazio, Napoli, Fiorentina, all changing managers. And then if you work your way further down the table, there's other openings and Pilo has been mentioned uh, for a couple of them. So his name is kind of, at least in Italy, is sort of in the ether floating around. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. He, it's certainly going to have to be a big step down because, you know, Juventus was a unique situation. There's no other big club that, based on his one season of work at Juventus and a lousy season at that, is going to say, well, let's go get Andrea yeah. Pirlo. So yeah. he, it's going to be sort of a, a riffraff kind of club in Italy and try to work his way back up. Well, you know, as we said uh, last week for Weston McKinney over there at Juventus, he's got a new coach, uh, nothing new when it comes to if you're in this line of work. And so he's going to have to prove to him that he is as important as a lot of people think he is uh, when it comes uh, to Juventus going forward. Uh, Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. We'll see how that carousel ultimately (laughs) <laughs> looks when the uh, the music stops and it comes to a standstill. Uh, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, oh yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, You're on that beach, with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. 
All right, it's time for Ask Alexi. Uh, you send us some of your questions, either in a you know text form, I guess it would be, or as we have our new hotline, you call in. Uh, we got a hotline call that we are going to uh, take today, and a couple of questions from the more traditional social media platforms that we have out there. What do we got, Mossy? What are we starting with? Uh, first up, Ray Devlin. Uh, Pulisic, even just playing in a Champions League final now, elevates him above Donovan, right? Okay, so this was inevitable, right? You have Christian Pulisic, uh, the first American to actually play in a men's uh, Champions League final. Um, and not necessarily win it, because Jovan Karaski has uh, won it, but to actually play in it. And immediately when we start to see those those images that we talked about and we had this incredible sense of pride for what he has done and what it means for him uh, for what it means for american soccer and for what it means for our country the inevitable compare and contrast with previous players happens uh your to answer to your question is no okay uh, as as proud as I uh, as I am of what Christian Pulisic has accompli- accomplished, and not just winning Champions League, but in his brief uh, but very successful career and rise to the top, um, the fact is that it remains to be seen what Christian is going to be in comparison with others. Look, as I said before, I think he is well on his way to potentially becoming the best male American soccer player in history, but I do think that he has to have the international component. And to date, he hasn't, okay? His, his one foray ended in historic failure. I'm not saying it's, it's his fault, but he was part of the team that in 2017 failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. When we talk about the greatest and the best out there in, in our game, and you can go through a list a listing of them, and whether it's uh, Pele or Maradona uh, or uh, Platini or on and on and on, Cruyff, uh, Beckenbauer. There is always an international component, and that international component is um, associated with success. Not, not always talking about winning a World Cup, but success, uh, wearing your nation's jersey. Uh, this isn't a situation like, uh, you know, I don't know, a, uh, a Wales type of situation where you have these great players that just are because of the lack of talent surrounding them. It's rare if ever the, you are going to get to see them play, you know, your gigs and best and these types of players. National team, when it comes to the men's national team for the U.S., traditionally has qualified. And the expectation um, is that it will qualify. And by the way, Christian Pulisic at this moment is playing with arguably the greatest collection of talent when he steps on the field for the U.S. men's national team that has ever been assembled. And so, no, when you are comparing him to Landon Donovan, when you are comparing him to Clint Dempsey, just because uh, Christian Pulisic is a Champions League winner, does not automatically vault him to the top, in my, in my, in my opinion, and in my estimation, uh, in this inevitable compare and contrast. Uh, and not until he accompanies it with the international success that we almost, I mean, almost every person 
we equate that with. Not until he has that will you be able to say that. And I know that 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 boggles some people's minds, but that's how I look at the impact that you made. And once again, has nothing to do with what a wonderful feat it was and what a historic feat it was and how proud I am of him and what he has accomplished so far. But he's got a long way to go. And he's going to be given multiple opportunities to have that international success and component. I mean, it starts this summer and it goes into this uh, this fall in terms of qualifying. And then fingers crossed and knocking on wood, he has that moment to shine at the World Cup level come next November in the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. And by all accounts, if he continues on, uh, he has a great chance of having success. And that's where we start talking. That's where that's where we that that compare and contrast really starts to uh, uh, to make sense. But until that time, uh, uh-uh. and and this has nothing to do with me being old or me caring about Landon Donovan or that generation or anything like that. It would make me incredibly happy to see Christian Pulisic mirror the success that he has had at the club level uh, with the U.S. men's national team, and it would make me incredibly happy if and when he does that. And does that consistently to be able to say, yes, there goes the greatest male American soccer player ever because of this, 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 this. And he's checked off the club uh, part of it right uh, right now. And I want him to continue. And I hope he's not satisfied and hope he continues on and has success. But he still has to check off that uh, international side. Masi, what do you think? Well, just to dig into the, the game a little bit more. The only disappointment for me on Saturday was that there weren't more counterattacking opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, there was that one incredible one shortly after he came on that he missed. And then after that, every other time he got the ball, it was in a situation where it was more about retaining possession and he, and he did nothing wrong. He made the right play. Uh, but there really wasn't another opportunity for him to exploit his speed and run at that city defense. So, yeah, I mean, because he's an American, we're talking about him, obviously, and, and big picture, he was a, he was a, very integral part of this Chelsea team. But in, in terms of that Champions League final, he was kind of a non-factor. I mean, he came in at, in the second half and, and just missed that one chance. And then beyond that, there wasn't anything notable. Um, but do you but, think that just just doing that, do you think that, uh, to, to this question, that uh, that automatically elevates him to the best male uh, American soccer player ever? I mean, when we talk about Cantona, for example, it's it's in the context of what he did for for club that he is a great player. But is there somebody that argues that he's the best French player ever to play the game? No, no. No, I mean, the, the thing I've always said about Pulisic and Donovan is, um, you know, when you, when you take a guy whose career is over versus a young player still whose career is ahead of him, you know, it, it's hard to compare them in the basis of achievements. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Pulisic, he hasn't done the things that Donovan did, but he hasn't not done them either. It still remains to be seen. And so all we can really talk about now is in terms of talent, you know, and that's subjective. But, you know, you could make a case that you watch Christian Pulisic play and think he's the most talented player the U.S. has ever produced. And now we'll see if he can do the things for the national team that Donovan did. And if so, then ultimately he'll be ranked up there as the greatest U.S. player ever. But that part of it is sort of still a question mark. All right. What else we got? Go Pokes. Uh, asks, what advice would you give a young center back? I assume CB stands for center back. Yeah. College scholarship starting next season if he had opportunity to sign a professional contract in the US or Europe. All right. So, well, first off, we, as we've said many times, uh, getting to Europe 
is not that difficult. There's flights that leave every hour on the hour from LAX or JFK or anywhere in between. Getting to a place that is right for you, that is more difficult. And that applies even uh, domestically, if you have opportunities professionally domestically. The abandonment of a pathway and an opportunity uh, through college, you got to look at that really, really hard. And you got to be really honest with yourself or surround yourself with people that you're confident are going to be honest with you. Because that opportunity may be unique in that the reason why you are getting it may be directly related to your ability to play soccer, that scholarship that you are getting. And the level of education that you are getting may be directly dependent on your ability to play soccer in that if you didn't have soccer, you wouldn't have the scholarship and you maybe even wouldn't even be able to get into that particular college. So you got to be really, really clear and honest with yourself about, about the realities of being a professional player, how many actually make it, and where you are going. And look, I don't want to step on anybody's dreams, and I don't want to deter anybody from thinking big and having big dreams and following those dreams. But we all know that for every Christian Pulisic, there's hundreds of players that you never hear about, okay, that didn't have the success on the field, that didn't make the money, that had injuries or coaching changes or didn't even get the opportunity uh, because of passport or whatever it ends, it ends up being. And so I know, look, just because you attempt to follow a dream of being professional, whether it's going to Europe or whether it's domestically, doesn't preclude you from going to college. Okay. But if that opportunity is directly dependent on your ability now and what you do to the game, you better think long and hard about it. And by the way, just going the college route also doesn't preclude you from having professional opportunities in the future. But now you hedge your bets a little bit with that uh, college experience. So look, I don't have an answer because I don't know what this player is or isn't. But you should, you should think about it long and hard because look, we're all going to have different regrets in, in, a, in a life spent living, you're always going to look back and have different regrets at, at things that you did or things that you felt like you, uh, you should have done. And the allure and the, the siren's song that is professional athlete is well-documented and is incredibly strong. I, I, I get it. But just know that we only hear the success stories and we don't hear uh, the failures. And within those failures often are opportunities that don't necessarily come back and they are lost opportunities and they can come from just the, the soccer gods smiling or not smiling on you, or they can come from bad advice that you got, uh, or ultimately they can come from, you not being honest with yourself, and like I said, others around you not being honest with what you are and what you possibly uh, can be. So I hope he's successful in whatever, whatever he does, and I hope that he is confident in the decision that he makes and that you fortify him with as much 
information and therefore ammunition to make an educated decision as to what is best for him. And then it's about obviously hard work and about luck. And even with hard work and luck here or there, it can still not end up like Christian Pulisic and others. And it doesn't mean that the experience won't, you won't value it, but you got to try to limit the amount of times that you look back and have regrets on things that you did or didn't, uh, didn't do. What else, Mossy? Uh, well, the next one will be an audio one, correct? Yes, we have an audio one. And for those that don't uh, know or remember, our phone number is 657-549-2297. And people have been leaving audio questions and or comments out there. We do ask you to include your name. And we do ask you to be efficient <laughs> in, uh, in the words that you choose and in the time that you spend making your point. And the more efficient and clear and concise and articulate you are, the better chance you have of making the pod uh, as Phil from Texas has done. Uh, I think he's got a question regarding uh, sports and in particular soccer documentaries. So let's listen, listen to what Phil from Texas has to say. Hey, Alexi, hey, Mossy. This is Phil from Texas. Uh, the first message I sent was uh, I was a little distracted. I, I spilled my Red Bull, so I'm going to try again. Uh, Juventus has the all or nothing series this time around. And I was just wondering what, you know, you and uh, Mossy were, were uh, thinking about um, the uh, possibilities of drama unfolding and what your opinions are of Juventus having the all or nothing series and maybe. Uh, what who you would want to see the next the next time around? Uh, I know Moss really enjoyed the uh, Spurs um, version of All or Nothing. Uh, Alexi, I think you said you liked you would like to have seen uh, Liverpool go ahead and uh, have their shot at the limelight. But um, it's Juventus. I'm really eager to see what Ronaldo does and all that. And if there's more attention to Ronaldo, um, can't wait to hear y'all's responses. Uh, appreciate. It. Everything y'all do. Oh, and uh, Alexi, you have a fan. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of yours. You just really annoyed me with the whole Super League thing. But it's what bygones be bygones, I guess. <laughs> uh, Mossy, you're, you're awesome, too. So thanks for, the, uh, thanks for everything, guys. All right, Phil. So he's uh, so Masi, he he's all about the all or nothing series that we have. Uh, and we and we got the latest one now is uh, Juventus. Is that's what is that what's happening? Yeah, the interesting thing here is that Netflix already did one on Juventus chronicling the 2017-18 campaign, and that was the season before they signed Cristiano Ronaldo. And so it left a lot of people feeling like, oh, man, they should have gone back and done a follow-up uh, season so we can get a little bit of Ronaldo. Uh, and instead, it's Amazon Prime that's taken the baton, and they're going to do one on Juventus chronicling this past season, 2020-2021. Uh, which, of course, that also has Weston McKinney prominently involved. So, um, yeah, I don't love the idea of it being the same team again in such a short period of time. I feel like we've done Juventus and we could have moved on to something else. But the Ronaldo aspect of it, the McKinney aspect of it, the COVID aspect of it, if we're being honest, that'll be kind of fascinating to see how that all went, the Andrea Pirlo aspect of it. So uh, I imagine it'll, it'll be compelling. Uh, the funny thing is the Netflix one I just mentioned, 2017-18, ended with a emotional Gigi Buffon farewell because he left uh, Juventus after that season to eventually sign with PSG. He then went back to Juventus and now is leaving the club again. So perhaps this one will also end with a second 
you know, Gigi Buffon has turned into the Brett Favre of uh, European football with these uh, multiple farewells. But so, yeah, that's uh, that's my take on it. Yeah, I am looking forward to it. I, I love all these documentaries. So I'm sure. So we've had, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, we've had Man City, we've had Tottenham, we've had Bayern Munich, we've had Juventus. From a national team perspective, I think there's one on Brazil. Uh, uh, ironically, covering the uh, previous Copa America in Brazil in 2019. Right. So we're back to Juventus. Because uh, I know uh, our friend Phil from Texas was asking if there were teams that we would like to see. I've said Liverpool in the past. I mean, you're looking for teams that have inherent <laughs> dysfunction, right? Because so, so, I mean, Barcelona, th- those types of things, I think, would uh, would be interesting going uh, going forward. I mean, if you're going to. If you're going to go back to the well again, I mean, what happens with Spurs is always going to be interesting, as we were talking earlier. Are there any teams out there that you would like to see get the uh, get the treatment? Uh, there's been some talk about PSG doing one of these. I'd like to see that. You know, I love Paris, so any shots of Paris, well, I'll, I'll get a kick out of, and Neymar and Mbappe and all that. So that would be an interesting one for me. Well, you know what? No matter who they pick, just know that it's going to be better than Baggio, the divine ponytail. Okay. <laughs> By the way, you left one off your list. List. Uh, they did an all or nothing on Michigan football, uh, uh, chronicling that uh, thrilling eight and five 2017 season. All, all the highs from that campaign. So. Well, you're right, and and so I should. I mean, because I was only doing the soccer ones. So yeah. college, you're right. The Michigan Wolverines, National Football League, a NFL, if you will. Uh, Arizona Cardinals, Los Angeles Rams, Dallas Cowboys, Can- uh, Carolina Panthers, and the Philadelphia Eagles. National teams, like I said, Brazil, rugby, New Zealand All Blacks, and then hockey. They did one on the Toronto Maple Leafs. So this franchise is all over the map. But I think they've gotten a lot of traction on uh, on the soccer teams. And, you know, as we said, when we were we've been talking about these in the past, it's a risk opening up like that because you risk potentially showing the underbelly and showing some of the problems and and a lot of the dysfunction uh, that that uh, that exists there. Now, the payoff is it creates more personalities. It creates more interests from people that maybe don't have interest and it spreads that brand globally, which we know is so important. You mentioned Liverpool many years ago, before you arrived, Fox uh, soccer did a, a behind the scenes one on Liverpool called being Liverpool it was narrated by Clive Owen. Um, is that the envelope one? Yes. Brendan uh, Rogers. Uh, Brendan Rogers uh, but the interesting thing is Jurgen Klopp has made it clear. He, he has no time for any of this stuff. He, he as long as he's there, he was not going to allow Liverpool to do one of these. So, uh, <laughs> well, last season or this this past season would have been interesting, given the uh, not the ups, the downs, if, if you will. But ultimately, it ended uh, up in the uh, for Liverpool. All right. Anything else from Ask Alexi? That's it. All right. Once again, uh, you use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the social media platforms. And if you want to call in, and we appreciate everybody that is calling in, the number again, 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. The State of the Union uh, pod hotline, if you will. All right. We're going to take another quick break. When I come back, uh, we'll have my uh, one for the road. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, we're back. Uh, and at the end of each and every pod, uh, as we are wont to do, I give you my one for the road. And uh, we are recording here on Monday, May 31st. It is uh, Memorial Day. Look, uh, if you want to turn this off, you, you certainly can, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read something. And uh, I know sometimes, you know, when I talk about you know, the greatest country in the world, at least the way I, I believe uh, that it is in the United States, I know sometimes people uh, turn off or phase out and do all that kind of stuff. But uh, this is a day um, when we do give thanks and a day when we do um, have respect for so many that have made that uh, that ultimate sacrifice. And so I, I look back and I wanted to read some words. Uh, back in 1982, President Ronald Reagan, and look, this isn't politics or anything like that, uh, say whatever you want, uh, but this is back in 1982, uh, President Ronald Reagan uh, gave a speech on May 31st, on Memorial Day, at Arlington Ceremony. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read you uh, two little paragraphs here um, that I think sum up uh, very well. And we know that he was a, uh, had wonderful speech writers and was a wonderful writer himself and certainly a, uh, a wonderful performer, if you will, of those, uh, of those speeches and uh, a great communicator. All right. President Ronald Reagan on May 31st, uh, 1982 at Arlington Cemetery. The United States and the freedom for which it stands, the freedom for which they died, must endure and prosper. Their lives remind us that freedom is not bought cheaply. It has a cost. It imposes a burden. And just as they whom we commemorate were willing to sacrifice, so too must we, in a less final, less heroic way, be willing to give of ourselves. I can't claim to know the words of all the national anthems in the world, but I don't know of any other that ends with a question and a challenge as ours does. Does that flag still wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave? That is what we must all ask. Once again, Ronald Reagan back in 1982. And with that, I say thank you uh, to those who have made that ultimate sacrifice and in doing so have helped me and so many others enjoy the incredible freedoms that come with living in our great country. I hope everybody that is listening to this, that you had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. And I look forward to this next week and all of the soccer that is upon us. Thank you so much for participating in this podcast in all the different ways that you do and, and continuing to rate and review and subscribe and do all the different things out there. It makes us so happy that anybody cares about uh, anything that we do here on the pod. Mossy, anything to say before we go? That's it. All right. We'll be back here. Same time, same place uh, next week on the State of the Union podcast. Have a uh, wonderful week. And as always, size the day. <laughs>